0: As my high school teacher, Miss Judy Coleman, used to say, we must adjust to changing times and still hold to unchanging principles.
1: Hello and welcome to Unchanging Principles. I am your host, Josh Carter, and I'm President Carter's grandson. I was doing my final edits on this episode of the podcast, and we all got the sad news that Vice President Walter Mondale passed away. He was 93, and he was my grandfather's running mate and Vice President of the United States. My wife and I had the opportunity to meet with Vice President Mondale a a couple of times, uh, most recently back in June of 2019, so not even two years ago. Uh, He was an excellent statesman. Uh, He was a wonderful vice president, and he defined the modern vice presidency. Yeah, he was one of my grandfather's best friends. Uh, and at his core, he was a tireless civil rights champion from Minnesota. So to me, it was just remarkable that 24 hours, less than 24 hours after Walter Mondale passed away, uh, a Minnesotan jury found Derek Chauvin guilty on all counts for murdering George Floyd. You know, George Floyd was murdered on camera and we all watched it, but I had no idea which way this trial was going to go. I mean, we've been here so many times, but today it feels like civil rights won, like justice was served. And to me, that's a proud and profound moment for America. I mean, a Minnesotan jury showed us who we are as a nation and they said the right thing. Now, Walter Mondale was an important person to my grandfather and his presidency and to this country, and I have a lot that I want to say about Vice President Mondale, so that's coming. But for this episode, I want to talk about voting rights. Now, I know it may sound odd, but I have a very intimate relationship with voting rights. In my my family, we talk about voting rights all the time, and it's really not a stretch to say that... The topic of voting rights has, defines a very large portion of my childhood. My grandparents started the Carter Center with three main founding principles, three pillars. And those three pillars are waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. And in the waging peace pillar, the overarching goal, the reason it exists, is to alleviate suffering caused by political actions in the world. That's the goal. Now, the Waging Peace arm has many projects, but the very first election project that my grandfather tried to do was monitor the politically turbulent election in Panama in 1989. Now, my grandfather worked very hard in his presidency to improve the relationships between America and our Central and South American neighbors, right? The Panama Canal Treaty was one of his most proud accomplishments, and because of it, he had a really good relationship with Panama. So he wanted to help monitor that election, and he worked with, uh, again, Gerald Ford. Um, He also worked with the Prime Minister of Belize, his name is George Price, and the shadow foreign minister from Australia, his name is John Spender, uh, to monitor the election in Panama and make sure that it was a free and fair election. And it was not. The election was deeply flawed, and it was extremely corrupt. So that drove my grandfather to try harder in Central and South America. And he started developing relationships with other leaders in Central and South America. And he would talk to them about democracy and peace. And he would offer to help ensure free and fair elections in those countries. And for the next 10 years, so from 89 to 99, 14 of the 22 elections that the Carter Center monitored were in Central and South America. And he took us to these places. I mean, my grandparents took us to Belize and Panama and Mexico and the Dominican Republic and places like that. And my grandparents would talk to us about the relationships that they formed with the leaders all over the world. You know, in that region, but also in places like Paraguay and Zambia and Indonesia and Palestine. And the reason that he fostered these relationships is so he could gain trust and get them to agree to oversee a free and fair election that may take this leader out of office. So they would finally agree. And that is how the Carter Center started the election monitoring program. Especially after the 2000 election with Bush first Gore. My grandfather would get a lot of questions at Carter Center events about when is he going to monitor an election in the United States? <laughs> my grandfather would laugh and say that he would never monitor an election in the United States because the United States does not meet the election standards that Carter Center requires to go and monitor an election. And that used to throw a lot of people off uh, when he would give that answer. And my grandfather would explain that of the many problems that the United States electoral system has, one of our main problems is that the United States does not have a constitutional guarantee, a constitutional right for our citizens to vote. Now, functionally, a constitutional right to vote means that a government is required to facilitate an election where every one of their citizens has the opportunity to vote. So, for example, if a person is disabled, it is up to the government to figure out how that person can vote. If a person is illiterate, the government will need to figure out how that person votes. You know, for example, maybe the ballot has the candidate's photo on it, or maybe the ballot prints the colors of the candidate's political parties. A constitutional right to vote means that if your entire village lacks transportation to a voting booth, your right to vote forces the government to figure that out. You know, there's a great picture on the Carter Center's website on an election day in an isolated village in Ghana. And this village did not have a community center to hold the election, and in fact, The village didn't even have electricity. So the election commission literally just set up cardboard voting booths in the village soccer field, and it worked. It's a great photo. The constitutional right to vote means that you get to vote, even if you can't prove through documentation who you are. Now, many people in voting in places like this, they have never received a document from their government in their life, let alone have photo IDs. But the election board can handle it. So as an example, when my wife went to Sudan to monitor the South Sudanese independence referendum, the election worked like this. A registrar would show up to a village with their voter registration ledger, this giant book, and each page of the ledger was serialized. And there's two equal forms with matching serial numbers in this book. So you walk up to the registrar and the registrar takes down your information on both sides of the paper, and then they rip off your copy and laminate it and hand it to you. And that is your voter registration card It's a serialized ledger. So then for election day, when you go to the polls, the election officials match that info for your voter registration card with the book. They physically carry the book to this village and then you get to vote. And then after you cast your ballot, you stick your thumb in a, a cup of ink. So even if somebody manages to register twice, nobody can vote twice. And I have seen so many pictures of people voting for the first time in their lives with a very proud purple stained thumbs up. And these stories that I've heard in my whole life prove that there are simple solutions to universal suffrage. We just don't have that here. We, the United States does not have a constitutional right to vote. And because of this, politicians are allowed to play with the rules and they do. And here, they always have. Now, before I jump into our history, Georgia is again making headlines for its new voter suppression bill. And I really wanted to wait to record this episode until after Georgia voted on Senate Bill 202. And as you know, it passed the Senate with 24 Republican votes and zero Democratic votes. And on March 8th, our Republican governor, Brian Kemp, signed it into law. The reaction was swift. I mean, Joe Biden called it, Called the bill the new Jim Crow of the 21st century, but companies like Coca-Cola said the bill was unacceptable and a step backwards. And Delta Airlines said it was wrong and based on a lie, since of course there was no voter fraud found in the 2020 election. And uh, just a couple of days ago, Will Smith stopped shooting his movie here because of this law. Now this has forced Brian Kemp and a lot of the Republican senators that voted for this for this law to get on TV and defend it. And a lot of Republican lawmakers that I've seen have argued that everybody needs to read the bill for themselves. So I read it. It was 98 pages long. Section one of the bill gives the bill its name. It's called the Election Integrity Act of 2021. Section two of this bill is the reason that the Georgia assembly thought that this bill was a good idea. And they actually list 17 reasons and they're all numbered in there. And the first point that they raise is that many electors were concerned about allegations of rampant voter suppression. And many electors con- concerned about allegations of rampant voter fraud. Namely, of course, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Now there is no mention that there was no voter fraud found in the 2020 election. And that there was no evidence of a problem to fix here. And there is no mention that the Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, under great political pressure to do the opposite, forcefully, publicly, and repeatedly defended the integrity of the 2020 election. Their last point there is that they want Georgia's election system to be, quote, easy to vote and hard to cheat. I mean, fair enough, but they didn't mention that nobody was caught cheating. So the next 50 sections after that make changes to the law. This is the meat of the bill. Section three of the bill reads like this. Chapter two of title 21 of the official code of Georgia annotated relating to elections and primaries generally is amended by revising paragraph 35 of code section 21-2-2 relating to the definitions as follows. 35 superintendent means. And then the law goes to add a fifth definition of superintendent. And the part they added says this. In the case of the site election board exercising its powers under subsection F of code section 21-2-33.1, the individual appointed by the state election board to exercise the power of the election superintendent. Now this is one of the hottest topics in politics today, but this stuff reads so dry. That it's impossible to figure out what it does by looking at the section. I mean, you don't get any information about what a superintendent is, what they do, why it's structured like that to begin with, and why they're changing it. So what section three does is it allows the state election board the power to appoint a single individual to act with the authority of the entire state election board. That's it. That's all it says the state election board can appoint a superintendent. Now, in Georgia and every other state, the secretary of state is the person in charge of running that state's elections. The secretary of state is an elected position. So it makes sense that the election board in a state would be chaired by the secretary of state. And before this law, it was in Georgia. But section five of this act removes the secretary of state as a voting member in the state election board. And it creates a new chairman that's appointed by the legislature. Now this action actually gives the Georgia assembly three out of five voting seats on the state election board. This puts the state election board squarely in the hands of the legislature, which is obviously by definition, a partisan organization. Now remember section three gave the state election board the power to appoint a single person and have all the board's power for the entire state for an election. Section six of this law says the state election board has the power to suspend county and municipal superintendents. Now remember section five ensured, or in fact it required that the state election board is controlled by the legislature and section three gave this power to one appointed person. So if the elected Secretary of State doesn't want to play along with whatever this new partisan person wants to do in the election, Section 6 further clarifies that the Secretary of State must provide any and all necessary support to the State Election Board, meaning this one appointed person. Section 7 of this law gives the State Election Board the power to suspend fire or replace any county or municipality board of elections. So the state just gave itself the power to take over any local election board in Georgia. And remember, Section 5 made this partisan, and Section 3 gave this power to a single appointed person. Section 9 of this bill bans local board of elections from receiving private grants. Now, in 2020 was an unprecedented election on so many fronts, But the fact that this election happened during a pandemic just ended up costing a lot more money than we all planned for. Now, in the United States, elections are run, meaning funded locally, local municipalities, local counties. So in 2020, we obviously needed a large influx of absentee ballots. We needed new machinery to count those ballots. We needed new training on these machines. We had increased postal costs. We had secure storage spaces we needed to buy. We needed to put in drop boxes. We needed to monitor those drop boxes. We actually bought body cameras for the vote counters. I mean, on and on and on. It cost a lot of money to run this election. And remember, the president of the United States at the time was actively attacking democracy itself. So Congress did not act quickly. The public funded a lot of this election. Mark Zuckerberg threw in at least $350 million to help oversee election costs in the United States. And for reference, Congress gave $400 million. The organization that dispersed that money, one of the main ones was called the Center for Tech and Civic Life. And they gave 2,500 grants to counties and cities and municipalities all across America to help fund the normal operation of this election. They gave Georgia more than 40 grants to fund the 2020 election. And these funds were not for any particular candidate and they were not for any particular party. This is just the money to run the election, to print and count ballots, to make sure our election is safe and secure. Well, Georgia just made that funding, the funding that we needed to make the 2020 election possible, illegal. And then for good measure, Georgia extended the funding ban to Board of Registrars. Section 12 of this law allows Georgia senators and representatives to ask the board to remove election officials. Member Sections 5 and 3 made this board one partisan person. Section 23 requires ballots be printed on security paper. And it forces the cost of that paper onto the counties. It doesn't add any extra funding for security paper. Now I live in DeKalb County and uh, that's where I live and I vote and demand was so high for absentee ballots in 2020 that they actually ran out of internal ballot envelopes. So the way it works is I fill out my ballot at home and I put that ballot into a white envelope that just says official Georgia ballot on that. And then I take that ballot and I put it inside my outer envelope. Now, the outer envelope has my name, my voter registration information, has the serial number of the ballot that they sent out, and they match that to the ballot that they sent me. And that's where my voter registration information is verified. Then they open up that outer envelope, and I've got my inner envelope that has my secret ballot. That's how my vote stays secret in Georgia. Well, DeKalb County ran out of inner envelopes. So they just gave me a sleeve piece of paper folded in half that said official ballot of Georgia. Okay, fine. It worked. It was fine. But the fact is if DeKalb County can run out of inner envelopes, certainly with an unprecedented demand for, um, absentee ballots again, they would run out of security paper. So this law, this part of this law creates a bottleneck. If we ever have another emergency that requires a, a new massive influx of absentee ballots. If this law was part of the 2020 election cycle, that would have greatly limited mail-in voting in Georgia, especially in extremely populous counties like DeKalb and Fulton. Speaking of mail-in voting, Section 25 reforms all of it. So for the first time ever, if I want to vote by mail, I have to enter my driver's license number instead of having the county match my other voter registration information like my return envelope barcode and my signature. Now, this is infuriating. Mail-in ballots now have voter ID requirements in Georgia. Now, voter ID is one of those things that just sounds innocuous and maybe even sounds like a lot of common sense for people that never think twice about their own ID. But it's a tool specifically used to limit black voters. Back in 2002, almost 20 years ago now, my grandfather and Gerald Ford tried to overhaul elections election the United States, or at least give information on how to do that. And that commission was called the Carter Ford Commission. And they, a Democrat and Republican president, found that as many as 19 million potential voters nationwide did not possess either a driver's license or a state-issued photo ID. And those were, um, quote, most likely to be adversely effective were disproportionately young, elderly, poor, and African-American. Now, in fact, uh, Atlanta's mayor, Shirley Franklin's mother, could not vote for her because of Georgia's voter ID laws. Shirley Franklin's mother, she moved from Philly to Atlanta when she was 84, and the state of Georgia did not accept Pennsylvania's driver's license as proof of her identity. They required her to produce her birth certificate. Well, Shirley Franklin's mother was born at home in North Carolina in the Jim Crow South, and like a lot of elderly black people, she just did not have a birth certificate. Now, Mailer Shirley Flanka's mother has been voting for 40 years up to this point, And then when she moved to Georgia, she lost her right to vote. She was not alone. When the United States Justice Department looked at Georgia's original voter ID law that denied Shirley Flanka's mother the ballot, they found that 30% of Georgia's population was black, but black people made up 40% of the voters who lacked that form of voter ID. Anyway, back to Section 25. Section 25 narrows the window for requesting an absentee ballot by almost two-thirds, and it bans the Secretary of State, again, the elected person that's supposed to run the election in the state, and all counties, from proactively sending a vote-by-mail application to Georgia voters. Now, this piece of legislation is a reaction to Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who did just that in June of 2020. And that's because Secretary of State Raffensperger wanted people to vote safely in a pandemic. Well, that action that he took is now illegal. Section 25 further says that the state election board can find people who have duplicate application request. Well, I had to request my ballot multiple times. I only received one ballot, but for the primary and the general, I actually had to ask two or three times for the uh, absentee ballot in my in my county. Now, is that illegal? Is it illegal now for me to follow up on an unanswered email? The law isn't clear on that point, but to be honest, it's probably not. But the point of this law is so that Third party voting rights groups, for example, can be fined if they request a absentee ballot for somebody who has already requested an absentee ballot themselves. Furthermore, Section 25 uh, prohibits a Georgia citizen from registering to vote and requesting a absentee ballot at the same time. used to be able to, but this law forces a two-step process where there used to be one. All right, moving on from Section 25 to Section 26. Section 26 bans mobile voting buses. Now, this is very specific to Fulton County, which has more than a million people and is most of Atlanta is in Fulton County. They had two mobile voting buses, and they spent three quarters of a million dollars outfitting. Each bus was staffed with election officials and observers, and then the bus schedule, you know, where it's going to be, uh, was posted and did not change uh, before early voting started. And they drove to places in Fulton County like churches and rec centers and government buildings and parks and, and places like the Atlanta History Center to help with overflow for early voting demand. The buses were secure. They were successful. They were popular. There were no issues or even allegations of voter fraud. It just made it easy for Georgia's most populous county to vote. Fulton County also has half a million black residents and it's John Lewis's home County. It's reliably democratic. So the Republicans who wrote this bill made those buses illegal. Section 26 also limits drop boxes to one per a hundred thousand voters. And it puts that box inside locked government buildings. It's only open during office hours. Now that amounts to 10 drop boxes in all of Atlanta. And it makes them useless for returning your ballot on your drive home from work or after you put the kids to bed if you sat down with your spouse and discussed the candidates and filled out their ballot like I did. Now, for reference, I counted 37 drop boxes in Fulton County in 2020. And they were as accessible as a mailbox because that was the point. The system worked. Now, Kemp is correct when he argues that Dropbox did not exist before the pandemic. And, of course, that subsequent strain on the post office. But the fact is, the drop boxes were popular, they were convenient, they were very well utilized, they were secure because they were monitored. And this law ensures that all future drop boxes are essentially useless. Section 33 is the one that generated the most headlines because it bans food or drink from being handed out to anybody voting in line. Now, Kemp says that you can still hand out water to anybody who's further than 150 feet from the door, but that's not true. The law actually creates an additional 25-foot barrier about anybody that's standing in line, no matter how long the line is. According to Pew Research, white people in Georgia, on average, spend nine minutes in line voting in the 2020 election, and black people spent 51 minutes in line. Brian Kipp admitted on CNBC that some precincts in Fulton County had three or four or five or six hour lines. That's what the buses were for. He countered with other provisions of the law, like there's now a minimum number of voting machines per precinct, or there's a new requirement to break up a voting precinct if uh, they had a line over an hour in a previous election. But those minimums, those types of minimums already existed. It just comes down to funding. Because if you break up a precinct, you've got to create two precincts now, and you've got to have voting machines in those precincts, and you've got to staff them. If you don't have the resources, if the county does not have the money, this law does not add any money. It just adds an expensive requirement. I mean, in case there's any question who the Republicans are targeting with this law, just look at Section 33 for your answer. Joe Biden said, this is what a 21st century Jim Crow looks like. Or Stacey Abrams said, this is Jim Crow in a suit and tie. This law does not say it's illegal to vote if you're black. And it does not say it's illegal to vote if you're poor. This law instead just makes it harder to cast your ballot. And it specifically intacts the improvements that majority black districts in Georgia used to make this election in 2020 more accessible to Georgia voters. What's the difference in denying a person the right to vote explicitly because of the color of their skin or denying that same person the right to vote by making them stand in line for six hours without food or water? So if that's too much, just look at it like this. Which way does the law move the needle? If it's now a criminal offense to hand somebody a bottle of water in line, which way does that move the needle? Now, I'm just guessing here, but... I would bet that black people know that there are no white people worried about being arrested for passing their buddy a bottle of water in line to vote. But white people have been intimidating black people at the polls since Reconstruction. And now here's just one more weapon, one more reason for black people not to show up at the polls. And removing mobile voting booths in Atlanta, I mean, which way does that move the needle? And then making absentee ballots harder to request Harder to process, harder to return, and harder to count. What's the likely outcome of that? I mean, in 2021, the goal of Jim Crow 2.0 is not to strip all black people from the ballot. It's to strip enough. It's to strip maybe
0: 11,780 votes. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes, fellas. I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break.
1: Now, a lot of the voting rights discussions that I've heard you know, recently, especially in light of this law coming into, into being, uh, the discussions start in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. Now, certainly for any modern conversation on shaping voting rights in this country, that is a great place to start. However, for this episode, I want to go back to our earliest history, before the Voting Rights Act, before the Civil Rights Act, before the civil rights movement even. Our struggles with voting rights starts before we're even a country. And as entrenched as the battle seems today, voting rights battles have always been that way. So I think it's important to understand how we got the system we have today. How in 2021, Senate bills 202 are even possible. So before I talk about the civil rights movement and the voting Rights act that defines our politics today, I think it's important to know how all this started. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to the pilgrims. In 1536, John Calvin wrote down his ideas of Christianity in a book called The Institutes of Christian Religion. One of the main ideas of Institutes was that God was sovereign in the Christian Church, and not the Pope, and not the King. And the book defined the Protestant Reformation, which was started by Martin Luther just 21 years before that, so we're talking some pretty ancient history. But the ideas that Calvin wrote in Institutes gained a massive following, and Calvinism quickly became a threat to the Catholic Church and to the European governments that were built off of religious governance. And two years before Calvin wrote Institutes, King Henry VIII broke England away from the Catholic Church and created a new Church of England with himself at the top, of course, with the power to run England as ordained by God, says, of course, King Henry. Calvin and his followers believed that only God had absolute power in the church, absolute sovereignty, not the Pope and certainly not the government with King Henry's brand new church. And the followers of Calvin believed in a more pure version of the Bible, which is why we call them Puritans. And the Puritans reject the king's self-proclaimed newfound power as Christianity's gatekeeper. And the Puritans form their own separate church, the Separatists. And they worship God directly instead of through the king. Now, this was a big threat to the crown. So by the time the 1600s rolled around, it was illegal for an Englishman to be part of a church that was not the Church of England and the separatists were attacked by the crown at nearly every opportunity. And one particular congregation, our ancestors, decided to move to the New World, and they rented a ship called the Speedwell. Unfortunately, the Speedwell was a crappy ship, and it never made it out of Europe, and the Speedwell bankrupted the pilgrims. So for their next ship, they had to go into business. And a pilgrim named John Carver formed an investment company And he promised to have a return on the investments to fund a voyage to the new world on a ship called the mayflower and on september 6th 1620 the mayflower left plymouth england to set sail to new england to start plymouth colony on december 16th 1620. the pilgrims that set foot on plymouth rock they were not the first settlers in the new world but they were the first settlement from england that did not have a charter or a land patent from the crown. The pilgrims in Plymouth were the first colonists that had to form their own proto-government. And the Calvinists did not believe in political power coming from God. So they didn't have to follow any of the crown or the religious hierarchy in selecting their leaders. So after John Carver, the man who chartered the Mayflower after he died, the shareholders decided to vote on who they would elect as their next leader. And William Bradford became the first elected governor of Plymouth Colony, the first elected person in the New World in 1621. Now, this sounds grand, but at the time, governor of Plymouth Colony was really just an informal leader of a group of miserable people that were trying to repay their debt for chartering the Mayflower. I mean, more than half of the original passengers on the Mayflower died in the very first winter in Plymouth Colony. But even so, the colony was becoming successful, and the investors were starting to get return on their investments, and other investors just sent more settlers and supplies to the new colony to grow the investment, to grow Plymouth Colony. Well, the shareholders that owned part of this company, they called themselves freemen. And then they started assigning rights and duties to the freemen to run the colony. All freemen were required to, to attend what they called the general court. And the general court was effectively a mix of a town hall meeting, plus their legislature, plus their judicial system, all kind of at the same time in the same place. And as uh, new settlers would come into the colony, freemen would appoint other new men to join them and run the colony. So by the time 1636 rolls around, so that's 16 years after the first pilgrim set foot on Plymouth Rock, the freemen created the first representative government in the New World with a declaration, and they wrote this. They said, we, the associates of New Plymouth, coming hither as freeborn subjects of the state of England, endowed with all and singular the privileges belonging to such being assembled do enact, an ordain and constitute that no act imposition law or ordinance be made or imposed on us at present or to come but such shall be made or imposed by consent of the body of freemen or their associates or their representatives legally assembled which is according to the free liberties of the state of England this was the first time that any government or proto-government had called out representatives. And basically what that means is that the freemen declared that they shall only be governed by themselves, the freemen, or their associates or the representatives, and that new laws can only be enacted and punishment can only be imposed when the freemen, or again, the representatives, legally assemble in the general court. Now, the point of all this was to prevent anybody from governing like a king in their colony, and it required the consensus of freemen to make changes on how the colony was run. Of course, the flip side to this is that the freemen had now officially consolidated their power as the ruling class of Plymouth Colony, and they were the only people in the colony allowed to vote. Everybody else was subject to their rules. But even so, the Plymouth Colony was a very tight-knit community of Calvinist Puritans. From the 1634 tax list, we know that Plymouth Colony had about 164 taxpayers. So I don't know, triple that for women and children. And at the time of this decree, Plymouth Colony may have had 500 people. But Plymouth was becoming a popular colony and the population grew rapidly over the next two decades. So by 1658, the population in Plymouth was around 3000 people. And new people were arriving all the time. New settlers were coming from from Europe seasonally, and they were mostly other Puritans that were seeking shelter from the crown. But Quakers were also violently oppressed, and they also started coming to Plymouth Colony in large numbers. Now, the Puritans saw the Quakers as straight heretics. They couldn't stand them. So the Freemen ran the government, and they just passed a law that said Quakers can never hold Freeman status in Plymouth Colony. Their law stated that freeman status was denied to, quote, opposers of the good and wholesome laws of the colony or manifest opposers of the true worship of God or such as refused to do the country service. And then the general court further clarified that any freeman who converted to be a Quaker would lose his freeman status and lose his right to vote. So there it is 129 years before the Constitution of the United States was ratified. 118 years before the Declaration of Independence was signed. As far as I can tell, the very first voter disenfranchisement law on this continent was passed in 1658. And we have fought over voting rights ever since. Now, of course, even before this law ensured that voting rights could not go to Quakers, Voting was already restricted to freemen, who were all white men, who all had some sort of standing in the colony already. And around the New World, power was restricted only to people in power. (laughs) And by the time the 13 colonies came together to form the United States, every single one of the colonies restricted voting to land-owning white male Protestants. Now, when the leaders in the colonies started debating whether or not they were going to join or support this new United States. They wanted to ensure that they would retain all their power. So, as they saw it, allowing colonies to limit access to the ballot was the most important consideration for them joining the Union. You know, as they saw it, the representatives in the United States needed to choose their voters in order to maintain power in the new United States. So, in 1787, when our Constitution was ratified, It created the ability for people to choose their representatives in the United States House representatives and to appoint their electors to vote for president. But our Constitution specifically declines to say how to run those elections. Instead, it says this. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. And the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for the electors in the most numerous branch, of the state legislature. So the Constitution basically says, however you fill your state legislature, just do that for the House of Representatives. So this passage immediately created 13 different electoral systems for populating the federal government, which obviously has only grown since the United States added states, and then those states give election power to the individual counties. Before electing the president, some of the framers wanted Congress to do it, and some of the framers wanted the people to do it. So the Constitution just told the states to send their electors to Electoral College however they wanted to do it, so long as it reflects, quote, the sense of the people. Now, as you know, George Washington was our first elected president. But out of the 13 colonies, Virginia and New York were ineligible to vote. Five states voted for Washington through their legislature and six states voted by popular vote. So among those six states, about 43,600 votes were cast in the first presidential election. Now the 1790 census counted 3.9 million people in the United States. There were 800,000 free white men, one and a half million free white women, about 60,000 free black people and 700,000 slaves. So if we count these votes through our modern lens, Voter turnout in the first presidential election was about 5.4% if you just look at the free white men. But if you look at all adults in the United States, voter turnout for George Washington was 1.4%. Now, the power that the government has over the people and the promise of an America by the people and for the people created this natural tension to increase access to the ballot. White men began demanding access to the ballot right after Washington's election. And property requirements, you know, we had to own land in order to vote, those requirements started to drop in Kentucky in 1792, and a lot of the states dropped them until North Carolina finally dropped it in 1856. So ballot access grew dramatically in the first half of the 1800s. For example, in 1820, our fifth president was James Monroe, and he was reelected in an election where only 104,000 votes were cast in the entire election. But by 1840, just 20 years later, 2.4 million votes were cast, and William Henry Harrison beat Martin Van Buren by 147,000 votes, which is more than the entire election just 20 years prior. So by 1860, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and North Carolina all dropped their tax-paying requirements, and that gave white men access to the ballot for the first time universal suffrage for white men. And the civil war broke out one year later. (laughs) So in 1864, right in the middle of the civil war, Abraham Lincoln beat George McClellan through our nation's very first mail mail-in ballot election. And then when the South was defeated and the slaves were free, the government of the United States launched an earnest campaign to bring equality to the newly freed black citizens. I mean, they did. The federal forces occupied the South after the Civil War to oversee their freedom. The 13th Amendment of our Constitution abolished the slavery, United States. The 14th Amendment reversed the Dred Scott decision allowing black people to become citizens of the United States, and it gave that equal protection under the law. And the 15th Amendment aimed to give black people the ballot by prohibiting the federal government and the state governments from denying a citizen the right to vote based on a citizen's race, color, or previous condition of servitude, whether or not they were a slave. And that was a massive expansion of voting rights and black political power in the United States. But <laughs> Reconstruction ended abruptly in 1877 through a compromise called the Great Betrayal. And what happened in the Great Betrayal was Rutherford B. Hayes, who almost certainly lost that election to Samuel Tilden, instead compromised with the Southern states and said, hey, if you give me your electoral votes, I will take the feds out of the South. And that was the compromise that stole the election from Samuel Tilden and gave it to Hayes and ended Reconstruction in the United States. And the feds pulled out of the South. And the South quickly found ways to disenfranchise black people again. Segregationists called themselves redeemers. And they regained power and quickly mobilized to remove all of the newfound black political power. I mean, after the 15th Amendment was uh, ratified in 1870, the Ku Klux Klan started explicitly targeting black people at the polls and black political meetings. And then in 1874, the White Man's Leagues was formed explicitly to terrorize and disrupt black political power, basically as the militant wing of the Democratic Party. So the 20 years between 1890 and 1910, every Confederate state had approved black disenfranchisement laws, such as poll taxes or residency rules or literacy tests. Now, literacy tests were administered by white voter registrars, and they were effectively impossible to, t- to pass. I mean, it sounds innocuous. A literacy test you should be able to read before you can vote. But in Dallas County, Alabama, for example, the literacy test required a prospective voter to list all 67 county judges in the state by memory. I mean, you just couldn't do it. But states had a law that also said that if your grandfather was able to vote, then you can vote without taking a literacy test or paying a poll tax. And since nearly every black citizen in the United States had slave grandparents, they were blocked. And that's actually where the term grandfather clause comes from. In many states, such as Alabama and Mississippi, they just adopted a clause that allowed voter registrars to register anybody that was, quote, of good moral character, effectively allowing registrars to legally register anybody they wanted to White people, and apply voting restrictions to anybody they wanted to keep out. Black people. And black voting power was essentially eliminated overnight. And it was explicit. For example, in 1901, so we're after the Civil War, we're after Reconstruction, we're after Reconstruction was stopped by Hayes. Alabama adopted a new state constitution. And the man that presided over the proceedings was a man named the Honorable John B. Knox. And I'm going to read from his opening remarks of those constitutional proceedings in 1901. He said this, quote, In my judgment, the people of Alabama have been called upon to face no more important situation than confronts us, unless it be when they, in 1861, stirred the momentous issue of impending conflict between the North and South, were forced to decide whether they would remain in or withdraw from the union. Then, as of now, the Negro was the most important factor in this issue. And what is it that we want to do? Why, it is within the limits imposed by the federal constitution to establish white supremacy in this state. End quote. So when Alabama adopted their new constitution after explicitly declaring the right to form a white supremacist state, the number of black registered voters fell from 182,000 to 4,000. Black political power remained non-existent from Reconstruction well through the first half of the 20th century. And racism was an extremely powerful force in the South. I mean, in 1954, when... Brown vs. Board of Education ended the federal protection for segregated schools. White citizens' councils were popping up all over the South in response to this Supreme Court decision, very much including South Georgia and including Plains. And 1954 also happened to be a terrible year for peanut crops. My grandparents had just gotten back from the Navy, and remember, my grandmother was extremely unhappy about this. And in 1954, my grandparents' farm cleared about $200 for the year. That's it. And the local police chief and the Baptist minister showed up at my grandfather's peanut warehouse and asked him to join the White Citizens Council to fight against integrated schools and to fight against black civil rights and to fight against black political power. Now, Jimmy Carter refused. So a couple of days later, They show back up at the warehouse with a couple of my grandfather's customers, and they told him that he was the only white person in Plains that had not joined. And then they said, hey, Jimmy, you know that this peanut crop this year has been awful. The White Citizen Council dues are $5. So tell you what, if you join right now, we'll spot you the $5. And my grandfather looked at them and he said, I've got $5. And I'd flush it on the toilet before I gave it to you. My grandfather grew up on a farm where all of his friends and all of his neighbors and his influential elders were all black. Jack and Rachel Clark were a black sharecropping couple that lived literally just a few feet down from my grandfather's boyhood home. And my grandfather would would work the fields like right alongside Rachel. and She was one of the most influential people in his life when he was a boy. And in fact, Jack and Rachel had a one room house, but they kept a bag like a burlap bag with a like corn husk or hay in it or something like that for my grandfather to sleep on whenever he went over to stay over there. And he stayed over there often. And also, Harry Truman integrated the armed forces in 1948, which was two years after my grandfather graduated from the Naval Academy. So my grandfather left the Navy in 1953, and he was a naval officer through integration. And Jimmy Carter was just not going to support white supremacy. But that was a very hard position to maintain in Plains at the time. I mean, when my dad and my uncles went to Plains High School in the 1960s, they used to get beat up for not hating black people. His stance was principled, but it was straight up dangerous. I'd also like to say that the Baptist minister at Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains today is a black man named Tony Loudon, and he's on the board of directors for the Center for Racial Understanding. So there's a lot of progress that has been made in the South. There's a lot to be proud of. But back in 1954, the political power of white citizens councils in the South and the continued Jim Crow laws that made it illegal for black people to use white bathrooms or white water fountains or go to white schools or vote. That was only possible in a white supremacist society. But when Brown versus Board of Education made segregated schools unconstitutional, that was just the crack that black Americans needed to become full citizens in this country. And exactly three years later, on May 17th, 1957, Dr. Martin Luther King stood at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial and used the Brown v. Board of Education decision as the catalyst that he needed to demand an equal voice in his government.
0: Fellow Americans, Three years ago, the Supreme Court of this nation rendered in simple, eloquent, and unequivocal language a decision which will long be stenciled on the mental sheets of succeeding generations. For all men of goodwill, this May 17th decision came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of human captivity. it came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of disinherited people throughout the world who had dared only to dream of freedom unfortunately THIS NOBLE AND SUBLIME DECISION HAS NOT GONE WITHOUT OPPOSITION. THIS OPPOSITION HAS OFTEN RISEN TO OMINOUS PROPORTIONS. MANY STATES HAVE RISEN UP IN OPEN DEFIANCE. THE LEGISLATIVE HALLS OF THE SOUTH ring loud with such words as interposition and nullification. But even more, all types of conniving methods are still being used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. so our most urgent request to the President of the United States and every member of Congress is to give us the right to vote, give us the ballot, And we will no longer have to worry the federal government about our basic rights, give us the ballot, and we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of an anti-lynching law. We will, by the power of our vote, write the law on the statute books of the South and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. Give us the ballot, and we will transform the salient misdeeds of bloodthirsty mobs into the calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. Give us the ballot, and we will fill our legislative halls with men of goodwill and send to the sacred halls of Congress men who will not sign a Southern manifesto because of their devotion to the manifesto of justice. Give us the ballot, and we will place judges on the benches of the South, who will do justly and love mercy. And we will place at the head of the Southern states governors who, will, who have felt not only the tang of the human, but the glow of the divine. Give us the ballot, and we will quietly and nonviolently, without a record of bitterness, implement the Supreme Court's decision of May 17, 1954.
1: Give us the ballot. The Civil Rights Movement led right into the Voting Rights Movement that led to the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which I think is the most monumental and consequential piece of legislation that Congress has ever passed. I mean, it shifted political alliances and it changed the political landscape in America forever. And the revolution and counter-revolution of that law defines our politics today. And the political whirlwind of that law was the atmosphere that my grandfather started his political career in. But the counter-revolution of the 1965 Voting Rights Act is still in full swing today. Just look at Georgia Senate bill 202. Voting rights are hot now and the voting Rights act deserves its own episode. So that's coming next. And I'm going to end this episode by reading an Instagram post from Michelle Obama that she posted two days ago. She posted this, Michelle Obama. I need you to do something for me across the country. Lawmakers are pushing for legislation designed to further restrict voting rights and disenfranchise voters. From Georgia to Texas to Kentucky to Florida and almost every other state in the union, these bills seek to make it harder to register to vote and to cast a ballot, setting up more barriers that particularly impact communities of color. Already, some of the undemocratic measures have become law and others are sure to follow. It's going to take us all working together, using our voices to fight back against these voter suppression tactics, and it starts with supporting the For the People Act. This legislation will make voting more open, more fair, more inclusive. As for federal elections, it expands the voter registration, including online and same-day registration, while requiring two weeks of early voting and making Election Day a national holiday. She goes on to say that she wrote an open letter, which you can find on Michelle Obama's Instagram. And you can also always call anybody you want to in Washington by the phone number 202-224-3121. That's the phone number for the congressional switchboard. And um, I use it a lot. Um, You can call them and you tell them uh, who you want to talk to and they connect you right to their office. It's super easy. Well, thank you for listening to Unchanging Principles. Thank you so much for, for listening and for reaching out to me and emailing me and finding me on Instagram. You've all been so loving and supportive. It's it's fantastic. It means a lot to me. And thank you all for reaching out to me about my son. He's actually doing really well now. He's always a high wire act, but we're hanging in there. I also got my second COVID shot and my grandparents have theirs and my parents have theirs. So I cannot wait to, to be with them again. I encourage everybody to go and get their vaccines so we can get back to normal and meet each other in person again. You can always email me at josh at unchangingprinciples.com Please find me on Instagram at Go Visit my website at unchangingprinciples.com And you can also call your senator who represents you and works for you and tell them to support the For the People Act. Let's give all Americans
0: the ballot. <laughs> There is a peaceful solution called peace revolution. Now let's take back America. There's a war and we're in it. I know we can win it. So let's take back America. There was a dream, so believe we'll it and get ready to receive it. Now let's take.